Welcome to T Hanks for the Memories, or should I say to my two guests, welcome back to T Hanks uh, for the Memories. Uh, today we are covering The Man with One Red Shoe, uh, which was released in 1985. Tom Hanks released two films in 1985. Uh, this is the first of two of those. Uh, he released two in 1984 as well, and I think three in 1986. He was a very, very busy man uh, around this time uh, as his star ascended. Um, unfortunately for this film, his star did not ascend high enough, um, and it was released on the 19th of July, uh, 1985, to what I should call mixed reviews. Uh, I think it's got about 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, it was budgeted at 16 million, which, to be honest, I can't see where they spent that money. I mean, <laughs> unless it's unless it's on the bleep bloop bunker, which um, you know we could kind of talk about once we reach there. But um, it only made eight million. Um, and I, I mean, there's a quote from Tom Hanks, uh, which I, you know, I feel he's getting top billing once again here, um, you know, in a cast that has a lot of very well-established kind of actors. So it's interesting. He still gets the number one slot. Um, and he said about it, it's not a very good movie. It doesn't have any real clear focus to it. It isn't about anything in particular that you can honestly understand. It made no money at all. Um, and that is, you know, a fairly honest assessment of the film. Although, obviously, you know, we still have to talk about it. And my guests today are Eric Nash. Hello, Eric. Hey, how are you doing, Darren? I'm doing great. Returning from Splash. And John Muggleton, you heard him last week, returning from uh, Bachelor Party. Hello, John. Hi, Darren. How are you getting on? I'm doing okay. So, um, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll say straight away, this is the first time that Tom Hanks um, stars in a remake of another film. Um, in the in the in the following three cases, I think they're all remakes of American films. This is the only one where they've remade a, a French film. Uh, the French film was um, was the Tall Blonde Man with One Black Shoe or Le Grand Blonde avec un chasseur noir. Um, so I, I, it's kind of interesting. I mean, this is and this wasn't like a you know a recent remake either. Um, as with all Tom Hanks remakes, actually, the next few they're all based on like films from like the. Uh, you know, like the the fifties, sixties, like very, very old films. This is actually the newest of the remakes that he stars in from nineteen seventy two. It's it's it, to me, it's so. I mean, I had to make a note of. I mean, I'm. I don't know. Maybe this is the way I watch films, but I get obsessed a little bit about uh, the timing of stuff. And um, in particular, in the last episode when we talked about Bachelor Party, it took an hour to get to the Bachelor Party, and a film that is an hour and forty five minutes. And in this, they take fourteen minutes before they bring Tom Hanks in. Um, and they actually say the title. They, you know, his, his character is identified first by the title, and that's a lot of time to kind of, kind of build up to, you know, the the kind of introduction of what is meant to be our title character. I mean, admittedly, in the in the first release posters that they put out, it was just a picture of a red shoe, which. If I was if I was a film goer back in the you know back in like 1985, I would see that poster and be like, "What is this meant to be about?" Like it's just like a picture of a red shoe, uh, and then obviously you know some of the the other posters had like Tom Hanks's smiling face. But again, it kind of gives you no real indication of what this film is about. Well, the first 15 minutes before Tom Hanks gets there is basically to me it's kind of like, I mean they're setting up the plot such as it is, and uh, it's kind of a spy versus spy type of thing. And you, oh, the thing is, though, it's tough to figure out, I mean, Dabney Coleman, at first I thought, oh, is this an FBI versus CIA thing? And then it took me a minute to realize that, no, Dabney Coleman's uh, an inferior to um, Charles Durning. Mr. Ross. 
Yeah, he's yeah. he's an inferior yeah. to Charles Durning, and also the whole business with the um, setting up the other the other spy to and Laurie Fisher setting. I mean, uh, Laurie Singer helping to set him up. Uh, I was actually I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, am I watching the right movie? For just a second, I'm like, <laughs> you know, it was like especially with seeing. Uh, the f- thing I laughed at was um, Dabney Coleman and Garrett Graham in their desert outfits, and the guy comes up to them and starts yeah. speaking in whatever language it is, and and Dabney Coleman just goes, "Get out of here!" And I'm like, "Wouldn't you get? Uh, wouldn't you get <laughs> caught at that point?" Yeah, that like the opening scene is set in Morocco. I'm guessing that the gentleman is meant to be speaking Moroccan, but there's a there's also a lot of B-roll of cranes. Yeah, like not the bird, the you know. Uh, the, the kind of the thing that moves stuff around and it just kept cutting to b-roll of cranes and I, I was i mean it's been a while since i've seen this film and i was like what on earth is going on here <laughs> like it's just not it's you know we hear this guy say that there's cocaine in the tires of this car um and then we we see a guy in like um the crane cab kind of operating it and it's taken so like you say you've got you know mr ross mr cooper brown is working for ross uh cooper is like running his own team there's like a very kind of like dark like senate hearing that's going on where like they barely lit any of the faces of the people in the room and i was just like what is happening like this it just it's such a kind of confusing start and you are basically just waiting for tom hanks um you know as millhouse once said when are they going to get to the fireworks factory <laughs> and eventually you know they will get there but i i i, I don't know what, what are your thoughts generally eric just on the kind of the overall kind of pacing at the start here do you think it's possible that this confusing nature was meant to, it was meant to be they, that, that's what they're going for they wanted to throw some different things that are they're kind of they, they're kind of juxtaposed to each other that you know why why is this happening to try to try to get the audience to think a little bit more than usual maybe but also for prepare them for I think a movie that is that, that certainly does get pretty goofy at points <laughs> I mean it's not con- this it's is not the thing as well. goofy. There's definitely these, no. these moments of okay, here's here's a linear part, you know that that I can I can actually understand kind of what's going on here. But there's other points where uh, the, the other oddball character actors <laughs> that I think we talked about in the green room for a moment that is they're just you know they're just great moments and and uh, otherwise not that great movie. I mean, it was for me as a kid that you know as a, as a 10, 11, 12 year old watching it on on Saturday afternoon TV couple a couple times really probably it was all and and there might have been a few more times where i saw just little parts of it you know and and but especially you know just the idea at that point after seeing some of the other tom hanks movies you know oh it's okay this is another tom hanks movie it should be pretty good but it's you know interest fades after a while during some of the scenes that are are definitely a little more adult not 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 as adult as bachelor party that you did last week but yeah well, I, I, here's here's the interesting thing as well. I would say, you know, when I saw this as a kid, the thing that really attracted me to it was not Tom Hanks, yeah. and certainly not the the spycraft. But I'm sure everyone will will, will is probably already there. Um, but it was, of course, Princess Leia in underwear. That is the like, you know, I was, you know, as like a 13, 14 year old boy, I was in love with with Carrie Fisher, um, having seen, and this is this is going to sound odd, Star Wars and Return of the Jedi, but not yet Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Um, I, I saw them out of order, which is a bit Well, I, I saw um, Empire first in the theater when I was like oh. two or three years old. And then I, then my parents took me to the re-showing then, then of, Star Star, of the first one. And then 
that's the one I didn't have on video. I only had the first one on video for a while that I was wa- able to watch. And then <laughs> Jedi comes out, and I love that. I still haven't seen Empire the multiple times like I had those two at that point. Except yeah. for I had the, right. the, the, the storybook uh, on, on, on record, you know? Then it went through pages. Yeah. So I had, the, I had the idea of the story. I had pictures to go with it. I had sounds to go with it. But I didn't have the moving image. <laughs> <laughs> except for except for having once once or twice essentially seen it when I was very young. Yeah. So so so, so you know, Carrie Fisher was the, was the attraction for me. I was like, oh, Princess Leia in another film, and she's barely in this film. Um, yeah. <laughs> she's in like maybe three scenes. Like it's it's kind of crazy. Which um, which which is the way the rest of her career pretty much went. I mean, it was it's really just yeah. her, her role as Leia, where where she's in it a fair amount of the time. But, uh, I mean, the rest of her career, I mean, whether it's When Harry Met Sally or Blues Brothers, I mean, she's she's not that essential of a, of a figure for those features. Yeah. yeah. You, know, um, you could almost cut her subplot out of this, except that yeah. it gets it gets you to Jim Belushi acting like a goofball. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah, that's and good. again, that's that's like... Yeah, I, mean, I, I will say this, uh, and obviously um, him not being a punchline used on the TV show Community Withstanding... Um, you know, I think Jim Belushi is quite is quite good in this, and and you know, I feel I feel like we're kind of we're not really kind of getting into the plot, which is what the film does. It go, kind of yeah. goes all over the place. Uh, but the basic setup is that um, Cooper is not happy with Ross being the head of the CIA. There was this this thing went down in Morocco where a car is lifted up and it, and it falls down and explodes, and all the all the locals, uh, you know, they they shout cocaine as they all run over and start taking all the cocaine off like the hood of the car, which was just <laughs> such a weird. Some of them don't actually do anything either. They just look like they're trying to get it, but they're just kind of they're like extras, so they just it's kind just, of repeat standing in there, an action. Yeah. Yeah, uh, which is which is one of them actually kind of puts a bit on his nose and then just stands there looking around. Um, so yeah, so this is obviously be, you know this this makes the news. You know, like a, a CIA agent is arrested, uh, it makes the news. There's a hearing going on. Ross is being you know the one who's kind of being pegged with it. Um, there is a bit of kind of business where he's like he's asked a question and he keeps leaning over and he keeps getting advice from I don't know his lawyer or whatever and uh, you know somebody who's kind of giving him any any. He's given like a deadline, um, which I think is twenty four hours. But then later in the film, they keep saying forty eight hours. Um, no, no, it's so forty eight hours. Is it forty eight yeah. from the hearing? Yes, as well? and the yeah. person he's leaning over and talking to in the hearing is Brown. Yes, yeah. Um, who is it? I'm assuming his kind of subordinate, played by you know Edward Herman. Yes, billed here as Ed Herman. I, I don't know. It, like obviously, maybe it's like a you know a Larry Fishburne situation. Um, uh, who looks? I mean, it's really weird because obviously I'm I'm used to seeing. Like I, I'm, there's, a, there's like an Edward Herman I'm used to seeing, and here he's so young and yeah. <laughs> looks completely like he, apart from like his very kind of distinctive kind of facial features, um, he looks kind of different. Um, so it's it's kind of weird seeing him in like a young a young role like this. Richard Gilmore, um, the CIA years. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's this is obviously where he made his money. He obviously funneled it out from the CIA during the uh, Iran Contra. Um, but yeah, so you know, there's obviously some controversy over this person being arrested, and you know, the operation went went crazy. Um, and then we see Cooper; he leaves the hearing. He kind of gives a bit of a speech outside, saying, "Which which seems weird because you know, I, I assume he's meant to be like a." I, and I would have thought the CIA would have been, been a bit more secretive, um, but he's more than happy to you know get his face out there in the press. Um, and he's kind of like you know, obviously Ross was responsible. If if it you know if he ends up getting sacked or whatever, you know, I'll take over. 
Um, and then we follow him to his secret underground lair, which is at the back of a tra- like a travel agent. Yeah. <laughs> and what I love about this is, I mean, I I mostly know Dabney Coleman from um, two things. One of which is a short-run sitcom that he had in the early 90s, the name of which I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, but I remember watching it, like, every single episode and kind of enjoying it, uh, where he played, like, a newspaper guy who was, like, kind of getting close to retirement. Oh, uh, Slap um, Maxwell. I don't know if that's the name of it. Yeah. That certainly isn't. Yeah, I think okay. that's it. Well, yeah. well and so I kind of knew him from that, but then also I only know him really in film from War Games. Uh, where he kind of plays like an exasperated like programmer guy who's like in charge of Whopper, and um, you know, in the end he kind of comes around to uh, Matthew Broderick's you know hacker. Um, but like here again, this is something I mentioned last week with Bachelor Party about the, the cousin, which I which I kind of hate about a character, which is other than him kind of being out for you know to try and bring down Ross, uh, his only main character trait seems to be he's always smoking. I'm like it's I I'm I, I'm just not a fan of smoking, uh, and so when characters do it in films, it kind of gets on my nerves. Although it's funny because when they have they have a scene later on where they've got all the intelligence and like literally everybody in that room is smoking, with the exception of the yeah. Laurie Singer seems to be smoking. Yeah, so I it's just I guess it's just because it was normal in the eighties, but it always just kind of bugs me. Um, but yeah, so we we start to get a bit of this kind of trade craft where you know. Cooper is running this like underground bunker that's got tons and tons of computers that looks like it's been taken out of war games, basically. Um, and they they've bugged Ross's house. Um, and when Brown goes over to visit him to kind of discuss what's happening, uh, there is a nice bit of stuff where they like um, Ross kind of walks up to this like painting and then turns on a tape recording where he's giving like you know a lecture about the painting so they can kind of go outside. Um, and talk without being overheard, and I, 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 you know, I, I thought that was that was a nice bit of business, um, you know, and, and they kind of set up this thing where uh, Brown is going to distract Cooper by choosing a random person, and and pretending that they are an agent of some kind and they've got some kind of information. Again, they never kind of say what that's going to be. They they just basically. Uh, you know the he he you know Ross says to Brown just pick anyone just pick like pick a guy, um and and that is kind of you know what he does and you know Cooper uh, he has um I mean are, the, are Verdon and Reese his agents or no they... Verdon and Reese are uh are Ross's they're, agents they're, they're Brown yeah 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 uh, who go with Brown to the airport, um and uh, Reese is played by Tom Noonan who obviously I think everyone you know a year later would you know, know as Francis Dollarhide. Um, but I, 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 he, you know, he's kind of out of all the, the agents that are milling about, he's the one that was kind of the more memorable, um, you know, and he, he will kind of come into, you know, Jim Belushi's story towards the end. Um, um, ho- and, and hopefully for Tom Noonan, everyone knows who that is. I mean, but, but, you know, I mean, gosh, I actually, I actually, you know, I only came to Manhunter after seeing Red Dragon and, and reading it too, even. Um, I then found out that oh, there's this, you know, previous <laughs> Hannibal Lecter movie, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, but yeah, he, you know, I'd love to see him. I'd I'd love to explore his further <laughs> filmography, you know, at some point. Yeah, um, I'm, and and you know, we get this, we get the setup then, which is Brown chooses a random person, and um, you know, he's at Dulles. 
as they say, uh, and and the, the agents that are with him say, you know, when is the guy coming in? Knowing that basically there's another team that's being run by Cooper they're listening in and he's like he's coming in from chicago and then they 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 question i think verdon's the one who does most of the talking uh, which of course will lead to his demise later in the film yeah uh, and he he's like who are they is it and he keeps pointing people out you know he's like the nun wearing shades which is which is which i like as a and that and that's actually that like that's kind of almost like a you know fourth wall break because Every single spy in this entire film <laughs> wears sunglasses. And they all wear... Some of them don't even just wear normal sunglasses. They wear those little sunglasses that you can attach to the bridge of your, of your normal glasses and then flip up. Um, and there's more than one occasion during this film where people flip their sunglasses up to kind of check something out and then put the glasses back down. And, you know, we then get the first of two kind of weirdly racist jokes <laughs> Uh, where they they see these Japanese guys coming down the escalator and they're pointed out as the Sony softball team, which I I was like huh and and then they point out like um, the black guy as well um, before eventually landing on of course everyone's favorite um, you know uh, homegrown movie superstar uh, Tom Hanks who his character is wearing one red shoe and I've got to be honest with you. I, watching the film, I was like, did we ever really get an explanation for this? Or is it, I mean, are we to assume it's just a practical joke that was played on? Yes, it was a, a yeah. Jim Belushi practical joke. I mean, okay. Yeah, I mean, so, that, that comes so much later in the movie, I'm pretty sure, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, after, it's, in, it's in like another 20 or 25 minutes, Belushi shows up at his door and hands him the shoes, the, the matching shoes. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so so his his friend has stolen one of his shoes, so he's he's wearing a pair of unmatching shoes. Uh, you know the title, you know the the man with one red shoe, and that is how he's identified by Edward Herman. He kind of like stands up and says, "That's him, the man with yep. one red shoe." <laughs> yeah, and and you know uh, the what man with one red shoe, of course, is Tom Hanks. Uh, he's playing uh, Richard, um, who. You know, he's coming back from he's a he's a he's a violinist. Uh, later on, I think we find out he's actually a, a lead first violinist, which is a highly paid position. <laughs> That's a, if you want to if if you want to make money as a musician, um, you know, play the violin and play it well enough that you you basically are the lead first chair of a violin section, and you get all the solos and you get the money. Basically, outside of conductors, uh, they are the people who get the cash. Um, not timpani players, which obviously is why his friend is, I don't know, playing practical jokes all the time because he's got nothing else to do. Um, but yeah, so Richard is kind of coming back from uh, Chicago um, and is, Paula is kind of yelling his name um, as played by Carrie Fisher um, and he's just basically trying to get out of the airport because <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing he's kind of had enough of whatever's been going on on tour and, um, you know, he, like, he gets stopped by Edward Herman who kind of does the... Um, you know, the kind of like Judas kiss on him, and kind of shakes his hand, and, and then and then kind of walks away, and be like, "Oh, I, I thought I knew you." Um, you know, marking Richard, and you know, Richard, Richard, kind of, uh, you know, he's 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 then bumped into by Laurie Singer, um, who will play Maddie, uh, the love interest, uh, once again for a, for a second film in a row, and this is not saying anything about early eighties Tom Hanks, <laughs> but Laurie Singer is ridiculously beautiful, and way out of Tom Hanks's league. I mean, I would even say at this point, Carrie Fisher is, you know, looking pretty good in this film and definitely way out of the league of either Jim Belushi or Tom Hanks. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, these guys seem to get these women. 
um, you know, last time it was, you know, like, you know, a, a penthouse pet of the month and, you know, a former model. And, and now he's been bumped into by another model. Now, I just want to say something about Laurie Singer, which is which I thought was quite interesting. Her father was a conductor and her mother was a pianist. So she like has like orchestral experience, basically. And she um, she used to she went to Juilliard as the character of Richard d- does in this film. And she was basically a singer who performed with, you know, an orchestra. So, you know, she she's actually musically gifted, which I, which I think is kind of funny because then for the rest of this film, she'll have to act impressed uh, by Tom Hanks being like a musician. So I just thought that was interesting that, that that's actually her background. Um, and I would say that like the kind of the I don't know, the last thing that I remember her kind of having a big significant role in was Shortcuts, where she played like a um, she played a cellist, interesting enough. Um, who was also a clown, <laughs> which, uh, which you know, it, most of the kind of promotion for shortcuts kind of um, had her in the clown makeup, um, and that was kind of like the promotion thing. But I think after shortcuts, she hasn't really done anything, um, you know, kind of notable. So I'm not quite sure what happened with regards to her career after that point. But uh, you know, in this, she is, you know, uh, extremely beautiful. And she basically lifts Richard's uh, wallet and gets his information so they can start tracing it. Um, and then Richard goes home. Um, so, I mean, how do you feel about this setup? Because I personally, I think it's quite funny. Just like the, you know, the I don't I, I mean, obviously, I don't think the casual racism is funny. Um, but I think kind of the way that Edward Herman kind of picks him out and bumps into him. And then the rest of the like the rival team then all suddenly start kind of. Uh, doing stuff and kind of setting up where the film is going to go from this point on. Well, I think it's definitely odd, you know, like like like, like in reading the Wikipedia plot, you know, summary, you know, it says pick someone out at random. I mean, well, that's actually really hard to truly do from a logical mathematical standpoint that I have in my mind. But but you know, you know, he's he's looking at different people, like like you were saying, and and uh, that's that's uh, a weird, uh, not not really the right way to do random if that's what they're really going for. But they're not. Um, so I can get past that, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, Hey, it's, 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 it's one of these, you know, uh, you know, you know, a normal ish guy getting, getting, uh, uh, you know, you know, out of his element and picked, you know, unbeknownst to him. for a huge majority of the movie that anything is going on. I mean, there are definitely some weird things that go on. But uh, yeah, that uh, it's it's just it's just uh, just just this loopy kind of uh, premise that uh, he's gonna be befallen by all all this uh, spy espionage stuff. The uh, the one thing that stood out for me in the scene uh, more than anything else was it was kind of funny. The uh, as there you see Edward Herman and Verdon and Reese come into the airport. Uh, they're walking through and you see Cooper's team sitting there as they are. They're all wearing sunglasses. But the funny thing that struck me was that Laurie Singer is looks to be working at one of the counters. Mm-hmm. And yet she's also wearing the wraparound sunglasses and looking like she <laughs> has no business being there. And it's kind of like, OK, could you be any more obvious? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, and I think it's it's worth saying as well. Like the counter that she's at is for the the front agency, 
um, like they've got like a tour thing that they that you know that where they've got their their hidden base you know is kind of in the basement of. That. Oh, see, I didn't realize that. Yeah, so, so. it's just, yeah, I noticed it's like the same desk. I can't remember the name of the company now that they they use it. Landmark Tours. There you go. That's it. So yeah, it's a Landmark Tours desk. When she moves, you do see the sign. Um, but yeah, she just seems to be standing there like rearranging pencils or something. Like she doesn't actually seem to be doing any work um, uh, before she kind of like moves. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like, I think I think it's funny because it is like the, the the best part of I would say about the film is that um, David is mostly unaware. Not David, Christ Almighty, Richard. Richard, yes, that's it. Richard is mostly unaware of anything that's happening. <laughs> um, and you know, he when he when he gets home. Um, you know, he kind of, um, you know, he, he kind of t- teaches a bit of like a violin to this kid um, who's like playing a song that he's written, which, you know, is a, a thing that will kind of come back throughout the you uh, throughout the film. Um, and then Morris calls up and, you know, they bug the phone and he's saying, you know, he's talking about the red shoe. Um, which of course everyone seems to think is some kind of code and in uh, in Cooper's team, um, and I think also Virgin and Reese are also a little ignorant as to what's happening, aren't they? They're they're just basically a, they're just running a rival kind of um, like project against Cooper's team, but they don't they don't know why they're doing it. Do yeah, they? they're just they're just there to basically keep an eye on Richard and you yeah. know make sure nothing really happens to him. And I think also give the impression that he's uh, he's an asset of some kind. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, a word that is heard approximately 107 mm. times in every single Bourne film. Um, everyone's always talking about the asset, and in this case, you know, he is the asset. Um, and so, yeah, you know, like, uh, I mean, a kind of a bit of the bit. There's, there's this. There's also this weird kind of running gag where one of the, one member of the team called Carson um, wants to, <laughs> wants to kill Richard yep. straight away, like without any real reason. He's like, we don't want to get information out of him. Just kill him. Um, and this obviously raises concerns from Maddie. She doesn't want to just like kill him. Um, and you know the kind of the first the first kind of I don't know the first kind of thing that they end up trying to do is they want to um, kind of cut him off and get some like they think for some reason that that there's some microfilm in his teeth, which I like because Carson goes that old trick. <laughs> it's like, yeah, because he he, uh, uh, he had a bag of joke peanuts. That Jim Belushi later find out that Jim Belushi gave him, and it cracked one of his teeth. So he calls the dentist to, just basically to go and fix his teeth, and the Cooper's team thinks that's the microfilm trick. Yeah, which which is quite funny because you know obviously then Carson arranges for one of the other guys to go in and take the dentist out, um, but because this this guy who's you know taken the dentist out and is there to replace him is kind of incompetent and doesn't know what he's doing as a dentist. Um, there's a patient that's basically there and she's kind of like screaming and yeah. um, this puts off Richard as, you know, he, 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 he uh, it's worth saying as well, he bikes everywhere. This is like a, this is like a character trait where they're like, he can't drive, he so he rides his bike everywhere. Yes, he's he's so eccentric, he never learned how to drive. <laughs> yeah. Although saying that, you know, I think this is, this is based in Washington, D.C. And that is kind of a, you know, it's a walk-in city. You can... Yeah. Yes, you can kind of get around. It's designed for people, uh, unlike a large portion of American cities. Uh, you know, it is designed for people to be able to walk around. So cycling isn't that much of an issue. Like, uh, but I do find it funny that they kind of judge him for that. Uh, but yeah, so he so he writes to go to the dentist. 
during which there's a bit of an incident with the you know um, Brown's team because they like stop suddenly and they you know and what's funny is and they get rear-ended yeah and what's funny is Richard kind of sees all this going on while he's like pumping up a tire but he d- he doesn't pay any attention to it he's just like ah okay and then he kind of goes about cycling. Uh, but as we say, he like he hears the the kind of the screaming at the dentist's office, and he decides he's not he's not going to go through with it. He's just gonna he's just gonna leave. Um, well, also he goes into the dentist's office, and I mean, number one, when the uh, incompetent fake dentist goes into the dentist's office, it's lit in such a way that you would not want to go into this dentist's office. No, it's all half light. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I, yeah, it, it, like it looks like no one's there really. There's no receptionist. Yeah. Like it just so I, you know, it's I don't know. Maybe it's because it's an emergency, or maybe it's a Saturday. I don't know. But it just it just felt a little bit kind of empty. Uh, but as he leaves, um, is it Reese comes up in the in the lift and and gets out just as he gets in the other one? Yes. Yeah. So Reese yeah. uh, goes into the dentist office, finds. Uh, the fake dentist and gets jabbed and knocked out. Um, and the f- yes, he gets sprayed in the face with the uh, the de- the dentist spray, which he's very happy to spray everyone with. Yeah, and and so he like he once once he's knocked out, the other, the, the fake dentist leaves, and they're like, oh, he's not going to the dentist anymore. And this is a concern because while he's been at the dentist, um, Cooper's team have been tearing his apartment to pieces, <laughs> like. There's one. There's one point where a guy's just like soaring on a chair for some reason, and I don't know. I'm like, yep. what is? What is it? They take apart his toilet. Um, you know, and they're cutting a hole in the uh, the kitchen wall because they think there's something behind the kitchen wall. <laughs> yeah, and again, this I mean, whole, this is this is this is a better usage of the term random that I was just talking about a few minutes ago. I mean, all these things that they're doing yeah. in the house are, are yeah, seemingly at least to us, you know, I mean, to any sane person would be random, but. These, I mean, these these people. I mean, I think they're made out to be somewhat insane, uh, kind of set of of spy espionage people, and in, in, you know, and in, in the government. Oh yeah, Laurie Singer's the only yeah, sane one out right. of the group of them. And yeah, it, I mean, it's funny because they find out he's coming back home, so obviously they put everything back together again. Uh, and this is, I mean, I would say this is where things get a tiny bit wacky, but they don't put everything right. back together properly, and so. So they, I don't know. They they seem to be extremely competent in that they can quickly cover everything up, but also extremely incompetent that they've put it all back together and it's wrong. And I don't even know why they why were they squeezing all of the toothpaste out of one of his tubes? Like it does. What is that? Like it doesn't make any sense at all. Like what do they think is going to be? It might have there? been something hidden in the tube. Who knows? <laughs> so yeah, they they put everything back wrong. Uh, but when he gets home, obviously they haven't had a time. They haven't had time to leave. Um, so Maddie kind of improvises and she kind of just it turns up and she says that she's there because, you know, this is a historical home and it's part of their like kind of tour that they're going to put together. Um, and then while, while he's there, obviously he's delighted to see her because, as I said, you know, she is extremely beautiful. And so he kind of starts to, you know, make out like this is some kind of fate because he recognizes her from the airport. Um, but while he's doing that, and again, this is this is like another kind of wacky thing. They they shoot three darts into him, and, and it takes three darts to kind of like tranquilize him. And I I don't know yeah. why he was like like how he was fighting against the tranquilizer. And they even say normally it only takes one. And it's like, 
So how could he? How could he take three then? What? What's got, like? Shouldn't that have killed him? What's going on? Well, and they don't wait to, and they don't even wait for him to wait to see if any of them take effect. They shoot him yeah. almost immediately. <laughs> yeah, they just keep shooting tranquilizers into his behind, and I think maybe that's meant to be the joke, is that he has yeah. tranquilizers in his behind, um, and he ju- like he just kind of like, you know, falls down, um, and then he kind of just wakes up, um, and. This what you know in between him falling down and waking up, we have this kind of briefing scene where they're talking about, you know, what he was like as a child, his parents, you know, he went to Juilliard, um, you know, he teaches he teaches uh, underprivileged youths. <laughs> this is just a picture of him with a bunch of kids, and you know they they're kind of like filling us in on the information about him. And as I said, everybody is like, apart from Maddie, is like smoking, and I, I, it, it's like it they they seem to be kind of taking it seriously. But the like the entire of his like apartment now is just like a kind of weird, wacky, almost like a silent film mm-hmm. where he goes into the bathroom and he goes to turn on the shower. But then like the toilet flushes. So then he flushes the toilet, but then the sink, you know, taps sink goes. Yep. And then so he so they basically hooked everything up. Wrong. <laughs> yeah. So then he like he like turns on the sink, but then water squirts out of the toilet. And it's just like. He doesn't seem phased by this. Like he doesn't see. He's not. At no point is he saying, "Why is all my plumbing completely messed up?" He just kind of goes with it, um, yeah. and it's just, it's just, it's just a weird kind of moment where I guess I mean maybe it only works because Tom Hanks kind of sells it as like just being like, "Okay, I guess like all of my plumbing now is completely incorrect." Um, and later on, when you know Maddie comes round and he and he gets ready, he kind of rushes in and he starts to shower by like flushing the toilet. Um, so it's I don't know it's just it's just a weird little gag that he kind of does but uh, yeah I don't know it's just it's such a it's such a weird like you know we're kind of almost 40 minutes into this film and it's like it's only just kind of figuring out what it wants to be which is you know uh, a normal guy is oblivious to these spies doing stuff kind of behind his back uh, which is what it will be for the rest of the film really like um, you know, this kind of the setup of all the stuff in the apartment is kind of the start of that. And I think this is kind of almost where the film starts to find its foot in a bit more. Um, and then we get, uh, you know, uh, Paula turns up, uh, Carrie Fisher, you know, starts stripping off and insists that they engage in some sexual role playing. Um Yes. Wearing Highlight of the movie right there. <laughs> Carrie Fisher in a leopard print uh, underwear brawn panties. Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, she looks magnificent. Um, I can only assume the cocaine that she was doing at the time was working wonders. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, it's it, like, again, this is such a kind of it's such a small kind of insignificant role. Other than the fact that she's, you know, her character is Jim Belushi's wife. Um, and that means that you know he's ha- like this is this is someone having an affair basically <laughs> like um, you know uh, my guess is that it probably is a uh, legacy from the original French film maybe yeah as they decided that was a a point in the plot they needed to transfer over yeah I was gonna say this does like this subplot does feel like the most French thing in the obviously in France literally everybody has got a couple of mistresses and having affairs with everyone. Um, so you know it's kind of seen as almost you know normal daily routine uh, and inconsequential. This is this is merely what I get from I don't know the last five French prime ministers <laughs> um, <laughs> all doing this. So uh, having separate apartments in different parts of the city and everything. Um, yeah, so it kind of makes sense. But again, like 
I, you know, the joke is basically that she is going to be Jane and he is going to be Tarzan. And that is why she has, you know, the leopard print underwear. And then he he kind of just doesn't like he's not really wanting to take part in it. <laughs> like he's kind of exhausted, which is understandable because he has just been tranquilized and, you know, woken up. So, you know, maybe he's not feeling the best. Um, but then we get this line where she's like, she'll play all the other parts, which raises the, the question, which is. Normally, when what are the, what are all the other parts? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess the other part really is only cheetah, um, and so you know, normally does he play the role of cheetah? Like, and I like I, you know, she, she, I mean, this is obviously this is a setup for something which comes later, which is you know, she starts making, uh, you know, uh, chimpanzee noises, um, and and that and that, like that becomes you know, this is obviously all bugged. By the by, the CIA, so they're recording it, um, and then for some reason later on they play it back. Uh, well, yeah, this is actually this was a point where I got a little confused because I took the way the time works out because they start to they look like they're about to start doing something, and then Jim Belushi shows up and bangs on the door, and my in my mind I thought that she and Tom Hanks had never gotten actually to anything. But then later on, when Jim Belushi is following the, we'll get there, but the, when he's following the ambulance and it's playing the recording of um, Tom Hanks and Carrie Fisher getting it on, I was like, wait a minute. I'm like, I didn't think they actually did anything. Yeah. It, I mean, they what brief, what brief kind of interaction they do is recorded and all of that is played back later just as the guy goes past Jim Belushi and that obviously causes a... One of the many cycle chases in this film. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a, it, I don't know. It's like a, it's like a standard in this. Um, but yeah, um, yeah. Like you say, Morris shows up uh, in the original French. He was called Maurice, uh, but in this they call him Morris. Um, and yeah. he shows up, and he kind of he's there because they've got to go to this baseball game where I believe the name of the team is the Senators. Uh, yes, makes sense in Washington. Of course, when he referred to the Senators earlier on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, the CIA. I he was talking about the yeah. actual senators. Yeah. yeah, which is you know, it's that's a nice touch. You know, it makes sense that if you were like a you know playing like a in a softball team in DC, they would have kind of political um, names. You know, that that would be that kind of makes sense. Um, and they you know they get to the baseball game and it doesn't it doesn't last very long because uh, Laurie Singer, I don't know, wearing like the sexiest jogging outfit anyone's ever worn. Uh, decides to kind of you know jog past and distract Tom Hanks, and so he gets hit on the head with a uh, you know with a baseball, um, and she kind of just like appears in his field of vision, like oh, standing over him. I don't know why nobody else in the field was like, who is that woman? Uh, you know, what is she doing? Like, why is she suddenly over the the prone body of uh, of Richard? Uh, but yeah, so she kind of shows up, um, and she decides to take Richard um, home. Um, and this is, I, th- I mean, I don't know why they, the, the CIA are set up in an ambulance and yep. it appears to me like they set that up because they were expecting Richard to be injured so they could use the ambulance as cover to kind of bring him in. But then, him away. but then yeah. how did they know he was going to get hit in the head by a baseball? <laughs> That's not a thing they could have foreseen. So I, I don't know. It's a, it's a weird touch. And of course, this is the moment where 
for some reason, they're playing back the sexual interaction between Paula and Richard, which Morris then hears. And I don't know why they're playing it back so loudly. Or even... Yeah, you can't figure out how he hears it because, I mean, ambulances don't have speakers attached <laughs> to the top, you know? It doesn't make any sense. But also, why are they playing it back? And why are they just playing that part back? It does again. I don't. I don't know. But it's. It's a. I guess it's just to kind of distract Morris. Um, you know, as we'll find out, the secret agenda of this film is making Morris go insane. Um, yes. And it kind of starts with this, where he he cycles after this ambulance. He gets. Um, they. I think they kind of try to evade him, don't they? And he gets knocked into this lake, and his bike gets broken. Um, and you know he uh, he now thinks that Paula was engaged in some kind of sex act with the ambulance driver, which doesn't make any sense because the ambulance driver was driving. So it's obviously going to. But then he also says, "Oh, it sounded a lot like you, <laughs> yeah. to Tom Hanks." Well, he uh, yeah. So he he kind of he gets to he gets to Richards, you know, carrying his bike, um, and he says, "You know, Paul, Paula was in the back of this ambulance with this guy. Yeah, he sounded like you." And Richard is like, well, it wasn't me, uh, because obviously he's been brought home by Maddie, and you know Maddie's there, but you know she she leaves pretty quickly um, after Morris arrives, and and then you know he's like, my bike is broken, and Richard's like, take my bike then, you know, like, and so he's like, okay, and he just kind of after 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 you know Richard phones um, Paula to prove that she wasn't in this ambulance, um, you know, he kind of go takes the bike and goes home. Um, uh, and, and it's like, okay, like, it, I, I don't know, it's a weird thing. Obviously, you know, Morris has been set up as this guy who keeps playing practical jokes. Um, but then it's like, he, you know, he thinks he hears his wife, but he does actually hear his wife. But he he can't explain that. And it's, it's just such a weird kind of, um, you know, uh, little subplot that runs through the rest of the film. Um, but yeah, and then we get some more uh, casual racism where, you know, Brown talks to Ross and he, he describes his process of choosing the man with one red shoe. And I've got to be honest, Ross doesn't seem to care about this. <laughs> I don't know why they've met. He's he's indifferent to what to what Brown is doing. Um, and then Brown says he was going to pick this Japanese guy with five cameras. And I'm like, I, I never, I, like, I don't understand this thing in the 80s of like... Um, you know, stereotyping Japanese people as like always taking pictures or always having multiple cameras. Um, you know, would they not just have one camera with multiple rolls of film? That would seem to make more sense. But I, it's just, a, I don't know, it's just a weird thing um, uh, that kind of just, you know, they kind of mention it in passing. And I'm like, I don't, like, I understand they've kind of got to keep Ross in the film just so that we, we you know, we keep him in mind as a character. But this this whole meeting in this field was just so, super super weird. There there yeah. definitely was this yeah this this thing in the eighties of this weird you know Asian racism you know low level ish you know I, I believe thankfully but I mean hey I mean it's it's, it's actually unfortunately come back um, because of the uh, virus uh, but um, but you know I don't I don't know if it's it's something that it, it, it comes about because it's a tempering for. You know, oh, something like Karate Kid, where I mean, well, the kid isn't himself isn't Asian, but his mentor is, you know, or something like that. I mean, there, yeah. there's there's this, there's this there's this heightening of, uh, of 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 you know, Asians of 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 you know uh, Japan specifically, you know, be, becoming a, a global dominant thing for electronics, say, you know, uh, uh, and it's it's I, I almost have a feeling that it might have be some 
you know, you know, trying to subvert subversion of that, you know, hey, if, hey, if, you know, subconsciously, hey, if we can't, if, if they're if they're becoming dominant, we have to take them down a peg. It's really it's really awful, yeah. but you know, yeah. we just gotta try to learn from it, you know, <laughs> and understand it better <laughs> and learn from it. Yeah, and actually, I was thinking the Japanese guys in bachelor party last week, they had cameras also. Uh, yeah. Um. Well, we get to, we kind of get to I don't know like the midpoint of this film, <laughs> and we we get kind of a big set piece where we we have this performance um, of uh, Rimsky Korsakov's. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to do this kind of Shahrazad. Shahrazad. There we go. We've heard little bits of it throughout the film uh, in the background. To be honest, like uh, not that you'd really kind of notice. It's probably Rimsky Korsakov's most well known um, piece. Um, and you know, within within the kind of p- performance, um, you know, it is uh, it, it, like you have both both of the teams are there, both of the bosses are there, uh, Cooper's there, Brown's there, like everybody's basically at this performance. And of course, uh, Laurie Singer is uh, dressed seductively in the audience, <laughs> staring straight at Tom Hanks. Um, and I just wanted to say, you know, because I did do one of my A-levels in music um, and part of my A-level was, was actually on The Great Five, uh, of whom Rimsky korsakov is one of those five. Uh, he's he's part of this, the, 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 these five composers who were known as, I mean, various, uh, various things. I mean, generally they're referred to as the Mighty Five, but sometimes they're also called the Mighty Handful, um, you know, the new Russian school, uh, you know, Balikirev, Q, um, Mazorsky, uh, Borodin as well. I think Borodin was the one that I studied the most. Um, and they, they kind of, they were trying to kind of um, write Russian music. Like they were kind of a bit annoyed that the kind of, you know, the romantic composers, you know, the French, uh, the Italians were kind of, you know, getting all the spotlight. And they kind of wanted to, you know, uh, uh, readdress that by kind of writing about more Russian themes and, you know, more Russian uh, stuff. Ironically, you know, Opus 37 is about uh, Thousand and One Arabian Nights. Definitely not a Russian thing. Um, no. But, you know, they, they basically wanted to kind of write about Russian stories. And, you know, they, they were fairly influential because, you know, uh, I think I would say like uh, Prokofiev, Stravinsky, Shostakovich, all those guys. Uh, and even as far as like, you know, Ravel and Debussy and some of the Hungarian composers as well, you know, like this idea of a kind of like a national identity was one that became kind of very important within classical music, um, you know. So it's it's an interesting choice. And unlike films before and after this, this is really the only music that's in this film. <laughs> um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, you know, aside, aside other than from, other than Thomas Newman's weird score. Yes, I was going to bring that up a little later, but we may as well address it now. Yes, Thomas Newman, who best known from my point of view as the composer of the theme to Six Feet Under, um, which is probably one of my favorite TV themes, top ten at least. Um, and he got that gig because he did this score for American Beauty. But yeah, here he's got this kind of, um, I don't know, I mean, it's its not quite like Philip Glass or something, but it, it is a kind of more minimalist um, kind of um, composition style. Yeah, it's a weird electronic yeah. sort of something. Does not does <laughs> not fit the film at all in any way, um, but it's nice to listen to. Um, and and it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of interesting just like the i don't know the, in the 80s there were a lot of people who got jobs doing certain things and i think thomas newman he like composed for a bunch of films in the 80s where he just composed what he wanted to compose and it did not fit any of the films that he did really <laughs> it was just his own style uh, i think in more recent times he's kind of been used better but 
just kind of yeah, just a kind of odd thing. And I I don't think we ever mentioned the director of the film, which is a guy called Stan Dragotti. Uh, yes, and he. Uh, I know his his body of work is not large, but directly before this, he'd he'd come off the success of Mr. Mom, um, and he would go on after this to make just two more films. She's Out of Control, starring Tony Danza. Uh, I think the only real attempt to try and make Tony Danza a a film star, and it kind of failed. Um, uh, and I think uh, she's Out of Control. I remember those posters, um, and mostly for Amy Dolenz. Um, who was yes. on them? Who, of course, was the daughter of Mickey, uh, Mickey wow. Dolan. Mickey yeah. Dolan's from Monkeys. Yep. Yeah, and that and this was kind of like, you know, she had she had a few films. Kind of, she, well, she went from Can't Buy Me Love to She's Out of Control. Like the, the, that was like her second film. But she's like on the poster, and it's a big deal. And I think they were trying to make they were trying to make her into something. Um, and I don't think it ever really took. You know, no, she didn't really kind of. Um, proof that if you have uh, your parents with an entry on Wikipedia does not necessarily mean that you will succeed. Although I think more recently she's been like a, a producer and writer, so you know she hasn't, uh, she didn't really do acting, f- you know, for quite a while. Um, but yeah, after she's out of control, he did uh, Necessary Roughness. I think was his final film in 1991. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, which is. Uh, again, the film that wants you to believe that Kathy Ireland could kick oh, okay. a field goal. Wow. Yeah, I don't know that I ever actually saw all of that, and I mean, it's, it's essentially a you know a continuation of play on. Well, Major League did pretty well, <laughs> so it's pretty much yeah, that's pretty much what version. it is. It's a college football major yeah. league. Yeah, if you uh, if you look at the Scott Bakula and Sinbad, I mean, if you look, well, I mean, what a combination. Um, and if you look if you look at the poster for Necessary Roughness, it is like literally a pigskin with horns and glasses and a hat, and all the all the kind of the star the people who are starring are in little kind of boxes that looks like the major league poster. So uh, it's clear yep. it's clear what they were going for. Um, well, uh, well, this director stand out for me definitely is Mr. Mom. <laughs> Though, I mean, yeah, the male yeah. yeah. one or two will take a uh, second billing <laughs> for me, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so it's uh, yeah, it, I don't know, it's it, it's it's an odd career, and that, that's basically when he yeah. finished 1981. That's it, he didn't, he he died uh, a few years ago, and he 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 basically didn't do anything after 1991, um, you know, so or, or mediocre white men. Yeah, well, yeah. So proof that mediocre white men can eventually fail and get no further chances. Um, so it, it does happen. Uh, yeah. So I mean, you know, we get this big performance. Uh, Richard, you know, has a solo. I mean, well, first of all, there's a gag where uh, we see Carrie Fisher looking at Tom Hanks, looking at Laurie Singer, and then Jim Belushi is looking at um, Carrie Fisher, looking at Tom Hanks, looking at. Um, Laurie Singer. So there's this kind of interaction going on, and that causes him. They have a musical argument of sorts. <laughs> yeah, uh, she d- she doesn't add any extra flute because, of course, you know she is a flautist. Um, so she she doesn't add any extra flute, but she does seem to miss a couple of her cues, um, and then he adds a ton of extra timpani that does not need to be there. And yeah. uh, the conductor, played by David Ogden Steers, just like out of nowhere, all of a sudden, here we yeah. have a, a MASH alumni. Um, I was just like, oh, where there? I, you know, I recognize this guy. Um, yeah, he's kind of getting mad because there's too much timpani. And then yeah. Richard, being first violin, he gets a solo. And at first, he plays what's on the page, and then he starts to play his own music. And this causes the, you know, the conductor to get angry and kind of tap on the music and be like, play this. 
Um, and it's it's kind of weird because the audience then applaud at the end of the performance, but during this performance, they stopped for the extra timpani and they stopped for the, for the extra violin. So if I was an audience member, I'd be like, this is not good. I'm not, I'm not going to... What's gonna, going on? Yeah, yeah what's not, going on here? I'm not going to applaud this. Um... Yeah, so it's I, I don't know it's 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 kind of it's kind of weird, um, uh, but yeah. So you know, after after the performance, Richard you know gets a you know uh, an address passed to him by um, uh, by Maddie. But underground in the bunker, um, someone takes the notes from <laughs> from the solo, and they run it through various like they have like a big board with lots of you know different flashing lights and different languages and they're basically trying to translate it into something that makes sense and they end up coming up with like a bunch of nonsense words and yep just gibberish yeah and i think it's funny that you know they're like oh no no that that's going to mean something and i just i'm like it's i, I don't know i, I thought it's funny because they seem like these characters seem to be taking it very seriously uh, but obviously yeah. they they aren't. And then because of course yeah, at, one, at one point they're like discussing the pronunciation of one of the gibberish words. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and of course, because this is a, a Tom Hanks early '80s comedy, uh, we then get some slapstick uh, from Tom himself. But in this case, to be honest with you, actually, uh, Laurie is the one who's taking most of the slapstick. Um, you know, he co- he comes back to her apartment, which is floor to, to floor to ceiling mirrors, which he doesn't seem to think is strange, <laughs> uh, because obviously they are two-way mirrors, and on the other side, the entire rest of the team are sitting there. Some of them, I think, with popcorn or whatever. They're just basically you know observing and waiting for something to happen um and you know maddie does this kind of seduction where she's like trying to tell him that he needs to relax and so she starts like taking off his his like bow tie um and then she unzips his um i would call them trousers but i believe americans refer to them as pants pants Um, and so she yeah she unzips his pants and uh which to to a british person would make no sense why would you have a zip on pants that doesn't make any sense um (laughs) <laughs> and she then attempt. It looks like she's going to attempt fellatio, uh, but before she can do any of that, um, like her long hair gets in the zipper, and it's I don't know. It's a bit of I don't know. It's a bit of kind of business that s- sort of doesn't make any sense because he he like abruptly zips his zipper up while her head is near his crotch. Um, so I'm like, what are you doing, Richard? I mean, clearly she's ready to engage in a sex act, and you're you seem to be cutting it off at the pass. Um, so, you know, she gets her hair caught in the zipper and then, <laughs> then we have this extended scene where uh, are, well, I, I'm going to applaud them for not cutting this as well. Like they could have just cut to like the, you know, the after where like she's cut some of her hair off to get it out of the zipper or whatever. But they don't. They go through the entire physical comedy of gradually getting to the bathroom um, yeah. and she's kind of being dragged along on the floor and then she's on her knees. Um, and what I like, what I like about this is she gives directions and she's like, "Oh, it's on the right." And then, and and Tom Hanks does this thing where he's like, "Oh, I didn't notice this when I came in," like, which is just like a weird kind of like, are you trying to compliment her on the layout of her apartment or something while her hair is stuck in your zipper? It's just yeah. such a, uh, but I kind of like the way kind of Tom sells it as well. Um, and yeah, it's just like a whole a whole bunch of kind of like you know physical kind of comedy stuff and then she abruptly goes into the you know the observation room with the trousers on her head still stuck in her hair yep. yeah so obvi- and then dabney coleman just rips it out <laughs> yeah. and um what i like as well is she goes she, like he's he he's in the bedroom with a towel around himself again floor to ceiling mirrors um you know i don't know i don't know about you gentlemen but you know uh, floor to i might be slightly slightly suspicious <laughs> well i, I 
Or, um, you know, do you really want to be looking at yourself uh, in this situation? Like, I mean, floor to ceiling mirrors, maybe in like a, a side dressing room, yes. But in your main bedroom, I, I feel it's a bit off-putting. But also very suspicious, yes. I mean, he doesn't suspect anything, of course, because he doesn't realise that everybody is a spy. Um, but I like that on the bed is the trousers with a gigantic clump of hair <laughs> still stuck in the scissors. <laughs> like, they don't even try to get it out once it's off her head. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, you know, it, I, how you guys feel about this, the kind of, you know, the sudden injection of, like, and this film goes on now with more and more kind of physical comedy. I think, I think this is where the, where they sort of went, oh, wait, we're remaking a French farce. We have to have some French farce in this. <clears throat> also, uh, it was interesting. I oh that uh, we didn't mention Laurie Singer's Halston gown, which is backless to the extreme to the <laughs> point of showing a little bit of her butt crack. Yeah, no, that yeah, that is how she begins the seduction, isn't it? It's just by turning around, and it, I mean, it just feels it, to me, it feels like she's put the wrong size dress on because it's going so far down. <laughs> but you know, I'm not going to complain about the view. I mean, you know, she does have, <coughs> uh, you know, it is a I don't know, a very attractive book crack. I mean, you know, like um, well, yeah, for I mean, for what she's doing, like you say, seduction. I mean, she, and, I mean, it's also like you know, turn around, she's displaying much like animals when we talk about animal. And sexuality yep. and so forth and and uh, I mean definitely it's yeah it could be the wrong size but I mean if you're gonna have uh, two two dresses say that are are each a wrong size in the different ways she's gonna have to go with this this way versus the other <laughs> to, to in, or, in order to have the seduction succeed yeah and we find out you know that like he says I've been you know there's a song that I've been composing which you know he's he's now dedicating to her because you know she's obviously inspired him. Uh, when he was brushing his teeth earlier with shampoo, you know, because that's how incompetent these, these CIA agents are, um, you know, uh, he, like he was inspired. And so like in the steam, he wrote some notes on the on the, the mirror uh, and he plays, you know, he plays this this piece for her, um, you know, and uh, evidently it works, uh, you know, twice, apparently, I mean, because, you know, uh, they get into uh, the physical act of love. Um, off camera, of course, uh, but with everybody watching. So I don't know, Maddie. You know, very well, right up until she turns the lights out well, and Dabney Coleman gets annoyed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so obviously Maddie's got a line, which is she's not going to have people watching her. Um, and then obviously afterwards we see her kind of lead um, Richard out. But the funny thing is, we only find out about the, the successful seduction from um, uh, the, the two guys. I can oh, I can never Verdon and Reese. Who are like on the on the rooftop and they're listening to the music, and uh, I think Verdon is like conducting with like a silenced like pistol, <laughs> and Reese has yeah. to kind of push it down <laughs> to say, "Don't do that." Like you know, it's it's a bit dangerous. Um, but yeah, and then this is the point at which Cooper um, instructs Carson to kill Richard. <laughs> like um, he's been resisting it for most of the film, but he's like, you know, kill him. You know, he's he's kind of had enough of of whatever whatever's going on with Richard. Um, and then Paula calls to confess to you know try and get Richard's attention, and accident you kind of ask about Maddie, and then accidentally she confesses that you know they've been you know having an affair. Morris is there; he kind of hangs up the phone for her, and she's like, "I could explain everything," um, you know. So like again, like very little Carrie Fisher in this film, but you know uh, this is one of those other scenes, and then this is where things start to kind of escalate and get a bit kind of crazy. Um, and you have like the two different spy teams that are kind of in the apartment while Richard is 
um, playing on a keyboard that he's got like headphones plugged into so he can't hear anything. Um, and one team kind of crashes through a window. Uh, another kind of like you know runs in uh, you've got these like four guys with guns um, Verdon and Reese and then the you know the two other guys that are working for Cooper um, and I think Verdon like accidentally kills the other two guys by offering them a cigar that then explodes in his face <laughs> just, just like, which I guess is obviously you know that's a call out to uh, the many attempts to crush uh, the leader of Cuba over the years yeah they uh, they what happens is um uh, the, the cigar explodes, one of the guys shoots Verdon, and then Verdon, and then Reese shoots the other two guys. The, yeah. Like Garrett Graham and the other guy. Yeah, so we, we end up with like three dead bodies, and then Reese is the only one left standing. Um, and this is when um, <laughs> Jim Belushi comes over uh, with a loaded gun. Uh, and I like, I, I don't know, this is just kind of I guess I guess this is I don't know you could view this either way but uh, I think it's kind of funny that he like turns up and he's got this gun and he says to the taxi driver how much is that and the taxi driver's like I was going this way no anyway charge. Yeah, no charge yeah no charge way <laughs> yeah so uh, but again that's you know don't threaten taxi drivers with guns I mean you know come on people um, you know they're just out there trying to earn a living uh, and so you know he goes up with the intent of killing Richard. Which seems a bit extreme. Look, I know Paul has been cheating on him, but, you know, you get some counselling. You can work that out. Don't shoot Richard. It's not his fault. He he's a, no. he's a single man. You know, there's nothing wrong with a single man, you know, seeing who he wants. But obviously he shouldn't see someone's wife. But at the same time, that's that's not his issue. That's your issue as a couple. Work it out, Paula. And an increasingly insane Morris. Um, yeah, so he sees the bodies when he opens the door to get into the apartment. And then he kind of just leaves. And then he kind of bumps into Richard. And he's like, you know, there's dead bodies in your apartment. <laughs> and because Morris is such a joker, he is the boy who cried wolf. Um, and Richard does not believe him. And so they go back up to the apartment. And, of course, the three bodies have been moved. Uh, by by Reese, and then like wherever Morris goes, there's a body, and then when Richard gets there, it's been moved. There's no body. Yeah, and yep. so uh, it, it's it's. I mean, this is kind of the culmination, really, of Morris's storyline. Like, this is kind of the last we'll see of Morris before we get into the kind of the finale here. Um, so you know, he just starts to doubt his own sanity. Um, you know, which is uh, I don't know. It's I, I, I thought it's kind of a weird way for this character to be treated, but I'm guessing this is something that carries over from the French, French film, yeah. probably. Yeah. It, uh, my favorite bit of the thing the, of the little physical bit that Jim Belushi does is when he, after he goes in and sees the bodies on the floor, when he first goes out of the apartment, he then reopens the door, puts the gun down on the end table next to the door, and then closes the door again and walks out. Yeah. Um, I, 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 because of course, then when he runs into Richard, he says, "I was coming over to blow your brains out," um, which you know is an admission of like attempted murder. So I think Morris gets off lightly, quite frankly, in this whole thing. Uh, but yeah. while all this is going on in the background, uh, Maddie is outside. Richard sees her being grabbed by these two elderly agents who've been kind of, you know, um, an important part of the team up until this point. Uh, you know, uh, Richard pursues on bike. Again, another like bike chase going on in this film, um, and there's a an, there's a nice I don't know like it's just a bit of stunt work where he like he he jump he goes down a back alley to kind of cut off um, the car that the, the the elderly agents are in, 
and he kind of jumps off of a, an old style VW bug. Um, and then he kind of slides under this truck through some ice that's on the ground. Um, and and I, I don't know, it's just it's just like a weird little, there's like a few kind of little stunts that they do here. And I'm like, I mean, I've never had any indication that he was anything other than a guy who just used his bike to get around. <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden, yeah. you know, they've thrown in some kind of like BMX stunts. I don't know, I guess, I guess BMX. Suddenly competence. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I guess BMX Bandits was probably riding high in the box office around this time, you know, making Nicole Kidman into a, a, a young star. So... I guess it was. I guess this is this is you know the best kind of use of this. But I, it's just a weird. All of a sudden, it's it's there's some stunts and we're in an action movie, um, and then of course he he kind of like skitches onto the back of a van, and then takes off a two by four like as he's cycling, <laughs> and then turns around, and then does this maneuver where he kind of meets this couple head on as if he's jousting them, um, yep. and I just thought, oh well, you know like. I, I thought I don't know. I thought it was an inventive way to kind of you know um, get the advantage when somebody's in a car and obviously you know coming at them with a gigantic piece of wood is probably going to cause them to do something and you know they swerve off the road um, and this is where he kind of like frees uh, Maddie um, and because you know two of them can't ride on a bike uh, they escape using um, the uh, the underground system. Uh, Cooper follows them. Um, I, I'm not sure how he's managed to get, you know, get uh, get up on the location of where they were because you know the chase happened pretty quick. They they happen to walk past Cooper when he's in a car, almost like Pulp Fiction. Oh yeah 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 yeah. Uh, and so that. he jumps out of the car, leaving the car in traffic to go chase them. <laughs> it's just such a it's such a weird coincidence. But yeah, uh, and they end up they. I mean, this is again. I don't know. I'm I don't know. A question that we're going to be asking with some of these '80s films is this racism. Uh, there's a there's an African American gentleman and he has a ghetto blaster that is playing music on full volume, and I'm like I guess like is this meant to be a reference to something or like I don't know it's like well here's the thing is that I'm pretty positive that the music that he's playing on the 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 radio is the background score that I thought that was actually kind of a clever little joke yeah because. It sounds like it doesn't sound. It's not hip hop. It's actually like rock and roll, and it sounds like the music that's been playing during the chase. And so when he turns it down, it's like, oh, he just turned the score off. Yeah, I did like that as a touch. That that's like a funny little touch. But again, it's like you know, uh, you know, like the fact that he's got this gigantic ghetto blaster. Just, oh yeah. yeah. I mean, it feels like the the kind of it just feels like a cliche that in pretty much any 80s film there's always someone with a gigantic ghetto blaster playing music but like you say he's not playing hip-hop so they avoided that stereotype um and this is where maddie kind of you know while she, while um you know cooper's trying to kind of t you know persuade her to kind of um you know stop running away she pulls the stop handle they get into these tunnels cooper follows them into the tunnels somehow they've ended up near um capitol hill um, and you know, so they run into Capitol Hill, and then she runs into the hearing room, and obviously Cooper just doesn't seem to be paying any attention to his surroundings. So he runs into no. the, the 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 hearing room with his gun up, ready to you know, I, I, what was he going to do? Shoot them in in the, inside Capitol Hill? Like, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But he still he. This is where you know Maddie kind of turns around to this committee, who apparently are sitting twenty four hours because uh, they're just there, um, and. You know, in the same positions they were earlier in the film, one might think that maybe they filmed these two scenes on the same day. Um, and so she turns around and says, that's the guy you want, uh, pointing at Cooper. Um, and then, you know, obviously Cooper is arrested and taken away. 
Um, and, you know, we find out that Maddie has made a deal. Um, but then we cut to what I'm going to call the world's busiest sanitarium. Yes, there are tons of people in that yeah. sanitarium. It's it's like it's like the middle of like a mall or something. Like there's tons of people. They're all wandering around. I mean, they're all dressed in white or whatever, but they're all wandering around, milling about. I was like, there's 50 people here. Like, should they all be outside? It just it just feels like kind of like I don't know. Somebody went wild with the extras, especially since you don't see any. You see almost no nurses or anything. It's it's just a bunch of patients wandering around in in what is admittedly some nice surroundings. Um, but you know, we find out from Paula um, that she is, you know, visiting with Morris. Uh, he's less sedated these days, <laughs> so obviously he's had some kind of psychotic break and gone completely crazy. Uh, and you know, we hear the kind of the call of Tarzan, uh, and we find out that Morris is in a tree, and so she climbs up in the tree because apparently they're going to have sex with all these other patients around in a tree. In the tree. Yeah, which. I mean, the logistics of it. I mean, I'm impressed. So, uh, but yeah. And then as, uh, you know, Richard is cycling away in the middle of a road that has no other traffic on it, uh, a car turns and stops him and it is Maddie and they kiss. And then we kind of get a, I don't know, we, we, we get, um, Brown is in a helicopter uh, talking with Ross and he announces, you know, I'm, I'm now your boss, you know, so... Uh, you know, it, it, that's really. I can't remember what they're talking about, but he's like, "It's it's your problem because I'm now the CIA director." <laughs> and the helicopter like takes off. Well, what, um, what it is, it's it's uh, uh, the one guy saying that about the girl, asked about the girl. Oh and yeah, Brown he's saying says, about Maddie Brown says, yeah, it was her testimony for her freedom. Yeah. Um, so I guess she's not employed by the CIA anymore. So how is she going to make a no, living? No, apparently uh, not. Yeah, it's a. Uh, but at least she has her freedom. I mean. Yeah, and and now she and also, Tom Hanks. Yeah, she has Richard, so yeah. um, you know that worked out quite well. Uh, yeah, and then the film finishes, of course, you know, with some more Thomas Newman score, um, and that's the end of the film. And you know, after watching it, I might agree with Tom Hanks in that it's not a very good movie, but I, I remember watching it quite a few times when I was a kid, and you know, it, quite enjoying it. Uh, and so as we reach, you know, the ratings, I, I mean, for me, I don't know, I'm kind of in the middle. I can't, I can't fully say no T. Hanks because I do quite enjoy watching this, even the, even if it is a really confused film. Um, so, I mean, I'd have to say T. Hanks for me, uh, but mostly it's just, you know, it's it's Carrie Fisher and, you know, Laurie Singer that are selling the film for me. And, you know, some nice slapstick stuff from Tom Hanks here and there. Um, but, you know, most of the plot is so muddled and confusing and... Even at the end of it, you're like, I don't know what she's, what, what testimony she gave him for her freedom. I don't under, I'm like, I'm still kind of lost as to exactly, like, you know, the CIA mess things up all the time, and I don't think there was that that much consequence. You, I mean, do you think the finer points? North. Do you think the finer points of like spy, the the spycraft and so forth was done so much better, say, in Spies Like Us? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah, that, yeah that's, like, that's the one. Yeah, I, I I agree. That's like the one thing that's kind of lacking in this that would make this much more in my adult life a, a more of a repeat viewing you know after seeing the one watching it the one time a month ago now but um uh except for of course you know as far as my adult you know well, film watching goes but yeah i mean yeah and yeah. for me i mean uh yeah i mean gosh it's it's so middle <laughs> I, I, I i want to like it more because it is tom hanks so much um because because i mean he is the he is the t- title character yet he's not it, 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 like you said at the very beginning, it's so much more an ensemble. 
and, and I like all those other I like all a lot of these other guy you know character actors like I said uh, Noonan and, and Landers wow I mean, to you know, to have him doing something that's not quite so on the nose, weird from Laverne Shirley. I'm I'm giving it a T. Hanks. I actually watched it yesterday for the first time, probably since 1988, 1989, when it was on the cable. It's I have to say, it is. Uh, I would say. For a major studio release, it is probably one of the more obscure Tom Hanks movies. It's certainly not one that gets discussed a lot, and uh, I had a good time with it. I mean, it's not amazing, and uh, the spy plot is a little muddled. It took me a little while to kind of figure out who belonged to who and who was doing what. And uh, But again, like I said, all the character actors, Tom Noonan and Garrett Graham and David Lander... And Dabney Coleman and Charles Durning. I mean, you can't go wrong. It's a good cast. Um, it's just that I don't know if they were just beholden to the plot of the French film, and that's a lot of what sort of translated. I believe the French film is it's French intelligence, but it has more to do with drugs than it does to do with spying. Okay, yeah. I, I did see some kind of indication, like in, in like the IMDb trivia about you know the the cocaine aspect was was lowered a bit there was a bit more on the nose aspect so to speak <laughs> uh bad pun but um pardon the you know, pardon the pun eric <laughs> um but yeah i mean it's i i, I you know i i generally am not too crazy about foreign films and having to read that much but I'll, but if if they're really said to be, I really want at some point I need to watch like Red Violin you know I I you know I, I I was interested when that first came out but then like eh subtitles and a lot but um it, it might be really worth it to to watch that French film <laughs> and then this again yeah. here in the next few months maybe hopefully well I would say this um the turn and the dis this dis- display of the uh the buttock cleavage um that was in the french film as well wow. that's that's basically an exact copy of that scene um oh, okay so you know it's that that's kind of the one of the more closer kind of like we said it is like a farce isn't it at that point like when she's got her hair stuck and they're dragging her around and all so it does it does kind of become um you know more like a farce there um yeah so i i mean i do as well like the when it, when it gets to the end and, and she, you know she says i'm no more a spy than you're a spy like and and he's like i'm not a spy and, and like she like she he can't basically say he's not a spy because she keeps phrasing things wrong so he can't actually say i'm not a spy without yeah and she's like himself. oh are you an agent and he's like no but i had an agent <laughs> yeah so there was a nice bit of kind of you know that, that i thought that was kind of a, a fun thing um, but talking of, you know, uh, the tall blonde man with one black shoe, there was a sequel, which was uh, Le Retour du Grand Blonde, um, you know, uh, which you know, obviously cuts out the rest of the title, you know, because I don't think the second time Randy's wearing a black shoe. But uh, yeah, so they did a sequel and the director of it said uh, it wasn't very good at all. We just did it for the money. <laughs> so, uh, that is the French for I mean, you. Um, you know. I, uh, I vaguely remember when I was little probably when I was eight or nine, the the tall blonde man uh, being on American cable television, but I don't think I ever watched it. Uh, In those days, it most likely would have been dubbed. Uh, You know, like the movie channel and HBO and Showtime 
when they did run the French stuff, it was usually dubbed. Uh, sometimes they would just run random things. I had the experience when I was about nine or ten of running into the tin drum on the cable on a on a Tuesday or Wednesday morning and being utterly confused at what I was watching. Uh, about the French film, though, it is worth saying that it like one of the the kind of the the role that is effectively, I think, um, the Charles Durning role uh, is played by uh, Jean Rochefort, uh, who, of course, I think, oh. uh, I think most American uh, certainly, you know, the only th- I think the only thing I've ever seen him in is the uh, is the Terry Gilliam documentary about the film that didn't get made, um, which I'm trying to remember the name of it now. Lost in La Mancha. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, obviously, you know, he had a long, distinguished career, um, but you know, unfortunately, various issues stopped him from uh, from you know taking part in that film, and then eventually he died in two thousand seventeen. Um, you know, in nineteen ninety nine, he was given the uh, the César, um, you know, which is the the highest honor in uh, you know in French arts. Uh, so yeah, you know, there's a, there's a certain pedigree to the the original French film. So, um, but yeah, I, like I don't know that like you could ever really make you could have I don't think they could have ever really made a sequel to this. Unlike Splash and Bachelor Party, which both got you know <laughs> kind of fake terrible sequels, fake sequels made. They never made a fa- they you know they never made a sequel to this, despite the fact you know a sequel existed and you know effectively in you know the the kind of return of the the Grand Blonde, it's just they just kind of get him on another mission and they just kind of make him return in that he ended up in Rio um, <laughs> at the end of the film and kind of the start of the next film, they bring him back from Rio uh, to France to kind of do another mission. Um, so yeah, you know, in this, we're just left with, you know, Laurie Singer and Tom Hanks kissing next to a car on the road and, you know, that's it. Um, so yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think uh, you, these early films, it's interesting to see, and particularly in the next few films, you know, the kind of the evolution of, of the kind of comedy persona that uh, Tom Hanks uh, kind of did. In this, he's a little, a lot more of a straight man, you know, because obviously he, he doesn't really know what's happening. Uh, but the stuff with him and Jim Belushi, you know, I think that was quite good. The stuff with him and Carrie Fisher, you know, they, mm-hmm. they work together well. Um, you know, so there's, 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 you know, there's a lot of kind of good stuff in here, but stuck in the middle of a plot that's just kind of, is so muddled, and at the end of it, you know, Brown gets promoted. Do I care about that? Not really. Ross, no. Ross got demoted. I'm not really that bothered. Cooper got caught. Well, he was trying to kill Tom Hanks. I mean, but I, I think we're supposed to think that uh, Brown is the of the three of them. He's the one with a conscience, maybe. So he's the one who gets the job. But it's kind of like, oh well, the good guy got something. Yeah, but it looks like he's just failing upwards, and you're like, uh, you know they all seem as bad as each other and then of course for the next few years it ran contra so i mean yeah. <laughs> you know you're effectively telling me that edward herman was the head of the cia when iran contra started to happen uh yep. which is just such a weird kind of uh thing edward herman is ollie north <laughs> yeah that is the film they should have made as a sequel to this they should have just uh, d- ditched the idea of the of having tom hanks in it and just made a sequel all about edward herman getting involved in iran contra um of tom hanks running guns to the contrast <laughs> yeah, unwittingly uh in his violin case <laughs> yep. uh yeah so well i think we said about as much as we possibly can about uh i think in french it would be le homme pour uh, un um i'm trying to remember what red is in french uh chasseur oh. red <laughs> 
Yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, so uh, let's go to plugs. Is there anything that you wish to plug, John? Uh, no, I have nothing right now. Uh, but I'm sure Eric has plenty to plug. <laughs> uh, if you wish to do that now, Eric. Uh, yeah. Uh, so almost famous minute is uh, the pretty the pretty big ongoing concern of mine right now. Um, uh, going through uh, Cameron Crowe's 2000, somewhat fairly autobiographical movie, um, one minute at a time. Uh, and then there's the the cousin to the movie by minute format that's. Uh, both of these shows are on the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's uh, Feels Like Weezer, and that's going through Weezer's catalog one song at a time. Um, and before that, I had Watchmen Minute. That's all done now, but uh, you never know. Hey, maybe the we, we did do the director's cut of the Zack Snyder movie, and after that we came back, at, or, or just, just at the end of that is when the HBO show started, so we, we continued on with that, but not minute by minute, <laughs> episode by episode. Um, uh, maybe there's... At some point, HBO will decide to do some kind of season two, but uh, but it's all right if they don't. Yeah, I think that's I think season one of Watchmen was all we really needed. I mean, yeah. you know, it seemed to end on a on a on a kind of conclusive finish. Uh, from what I remember, it's been a couple of years now since it was on. I think. Yeah. I mean, time means nothing these days. Uh, what with the last year, just everything blends into one. So. Uh, should you wish to follow this show on Twitter, you can follow it at the extremely awkward uh, t underscore ft memory. Um, and I mean, I don't know about you guys, but next week I am certainly volunteering to talk about another Tom Hanks film. The name of that film is Volunteers. That's what that was. So thanks for being my guest. And otherwise, goodbye. Bye. Bye.